Welcome to the Hematopoiesis, a podcast made by trainees for trainees by the ASH Trainee Council. In today's episode, Dr. Eric Vick, a Chief Fellow of Hematology Oncology at the University of Cincinnati, talks with Dr. Bill Kalin, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and winner of the 2019 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine about choosing your research and career targets as a physician scientist. I have a very special guest, an expert physician scientist, Dr. Bill Kalin. Dr. Kalin is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Sydney farber Professor of Medicine at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, a Howard Hughes medical investigator since 1998, and winner of the 2019 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his work on tumor suppressor genes, including retinoblastoma, von Hippel-Lindau, and more recently, including IDH1 and IDH2. He has 323 articles published in peer-reviewed journals and a long history of funded NCI grants. One could say he is a bit of a legend to those of us in oncology. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Hematopoiesis podcast. My pleasure. Nice to join you today. To begin with, I wanted to ask you about your journey to become a physician scientist. Uh, what are some of the things that helped you pick your eventual research questions? I think several things. First, when I joined David Livingston's lab as a postdoctoral fellow, uh, I was given the opportunity to work on the retinoblastoma tumor suppressor gene, which had uh, recently been isolated by uh, others. And I think it was from that experience that I really grew to appreciate the power of genetics, and in this case, cancer genetics. So the fact that four individuals who inherited a defective version of the RB gene developed a variety of tumors, including the tumor for which it's named, provided definitive evidence that there was a causal link between the integrity of this particular gene, the RB gene, and the development of uh, cancer. And so, you know, I often say, you know, genetics usually doesn't lie. If you want to establish whether something is causally related, you need the tools of genetics, causally related in the sense of uh, trying to identify the causes of various medically relevant phenotypes. So I've always let sort of genetics guide what pathways and processes cancers care deeply about because they, they oblige us by mutating the genes that are involved in those pathways and processes. So I think uh, I was really, I became a dyed-in-the-wool cancer geneticist in the sense that if you want to understand cancer, you have to understand the genes that are altered in various cancers. Uh, And then the second thing that guided my research training was my research choices had to do with my clinical training. In particular, I knew from my clinical training that the tumors linked to mutations in a different tumor suppressor gene the von Hippel-Lindau tumor suppressor gene, were notorious for being very rich in blood vessels. That is to say, they were highly angiogenic. And I also knew from my clinical training that these tumors sometimes cause patients to develop too many red blood cells. Uh, That is to say, to experience what some would refer to as perineoplastic erythrocytosis. And what angiogenesis and erythropoiesis have in common is that they're normally induced when cells or tissues aren't getting enough oxygen. So that was a clue that by studying the BHL gene, not only would we hopefully learn about specific uh, cancers such as kidney cancers where BHL mutations are common, but we might also 
learn about uh, how cells sense and respond to changes in oxygen, which turned out to be uh, true. So I guess a long answer, but I think uh, short to summarize, guided by genetics and also um, I try to be guided by clinical clues. Excellent. So it sounds like it was kind of a, for you, really a true combination of the clinical aspect of things and the more classic research training. Absolutely. I remember vividly the day I picked up the Journal of Science where the report appeared describing the isolation of the, the VHL gene. Uh, I had been an independent investigator for about a year. I was literally working down the hallway from my former mentor, David Livingston, who, by the way, was continuing to work on the RB gene. And people had appropriately whispered in my ear that if I was going to become a successful independent investigator, I might want to eventually pick a problem that would be my own rather than continuing to work on RB and on one level competing with my former uh, mentor. Uh, and as I, as I told you, I think the fact that I'd worked on another tumor suppressor gene, namely RB, really set me up nicely to work on this newly identified tumor suppressor gene, BHL. But, uh, you know, really my clinical training, I think, was just very helpful here in telling me that this gene might be really a wonderful problem to work on. Yeah. I think a big thing that a lot of us, both as PhDs and MD-PhDs, go through is trying to differentiate ourselves from our mentor. So I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to. Any roadblocks along the way that uh, you really had to watch out for that you've you noticed within your training? Well, you know, the first roadblock uh, on one level was my first experience working in a laboratory as an undergraduate, where I worked on a project that seven previous undergraduates had all worked on. And if I was smarter, I would have asked why none of them could bring the project to completion. But all, all I cared about was that all seven of them had gotten into medical school. So I decided, therefore, this must be a good project to work on. And in hindsight, I can appreciate that this project was arguably uninteresting, unimportant, and undoable, which is a very bad combination. Very young person entering the laboratory. And what was worse was the fact that this project involves some reasonably sophisticated protein biochemistry, and no one else in the lab really worked on protein biochemistry. It was really a physical chemistry lab. In fact, most of the people in the lab were doing dry bench research rather than wet bench research. And you know, this culminated in me getting a C minus, and you know, my professor basically saying, "It looks like your career will lie outside uh, the laboratory." So my first roadblock was being told I probably shouldn't work. In the laboratory. Fortunately, I had a better laboratory experience as a medical student at Duke during my third year, but it honestly wasn't enough to convince me I wanted to be a scientist. And then when I got to the Dana Farber, I uh, went to work for a junior faculty member who perhaps should go nameless, uh, only because after four months he called me into his office and said that he was shutting down his laboratory because he didn't want to do science anymore. So that at the time felt like a roadblock too. But fortunately for me, my last clinical attending had been the great David Livingston, and uh, I sort of arrived as a refugee on his doorstep looking for a lab to work in for another 18 months until I would become board eligible, and he took me in as an orphan and trained me how to be uh, a scientist. So there were some those types of roadblocks uh, along the way. And then, you know, the usual scientific roadblocks and frustrations, for example, the VHL cDNA, when it was first reported, the report said that the message would be 
about uh, 6 KB or so. The published cDNA was 4 KB. Uh, the assumption was that they were missing the 5 prime end and that the the, and furthermore, the cDNA they published was open at the five prime end. So we actually spent about a year or so trying to pull out a full-length clone, doing cDNA cloning from uh, phage libraries back in the day when you did those things. And we kept getting cDNAs that were no longer than 4KB. And in fact, none of our cDNAs extended five prime beyond the published sequence. In fact, we couldn't even quite reach the published five prime sequence. So this was very frustrating and we assumed we were doing something wrong until we did what we should have done day one, which was to do our own northern blot. And when we did our own northern blot, we could see that the correct message size was about 4 KB. Fortunately, we had invested in immunizing rabbits with a, what we thought was a fragment of the protein. So we now had antibodies and we could see that the protein itself was actually relatively small and could be entirely encoded by the cDNA cDNAs we were pulling out. So then the remaining mystery was why didn't we have the same five prime end as the published five prime end? And I then reached out to the investigators who published the paper who told me that they were so sure they were missing the five prime end that they in silico added some genomic sequence to the five prime end of the cDNA. So actually what they had published as a cDNA actually wasn't a cDNA found in nature. It was a hybrid of a true cDNA with some genomic sequence artificially appended at the end. So the lesson there, which was the same lesson I had learned when I was on the wards was, you know, uh, we used to say, believe no one, trust nothing and do it yourself or something to that effect. So we should have done the Northern Bot uh, right away. And there were the usual other sort of scientific missteps along the way, but it, it all obviously fell in place over time. Yeah. An extended lesson of trust, but verify. Yes, exactly. Trust, but verify. So it sounds like it was a lot of combination of persistence and fortuitous circumstances, getting everything situated in the beginning. And then once you were on the way, you were on the way. Yes. And some of the ingredients, uh, although they may not sound very sexy or sophisticated, are really important. So we did spend some time to make reagents we could believe in, whether it was having an authentic cDNA, whether it was having both bacterial and mammalian expression vectors for that cDNA, having antibodies that we could validate as being you know, specific for the, the VHL protein, et cetera, et cetera. So there was some, some old fashioned, uh, maybe you'd say blocking and tackling initially, but once we had the reagents in hand, then we could really go to work and try to understand what the VHL protein did, how it suppressed tumor growth, or put another way, why its loss led to the emergence of certain tumors. We could ask whether our initial hypothesis was correct, that it was intimately linked to oxidant sensing. And once we did that, to understand the biochemical mechanism that allowed cells to sense uh, and respond to changes in oxidant. Reading about the science in retrospect for me, it was really cool. Do you think knowing what you know now, you would have done anything differently from the beginning or along the way? Well, I mentioned one thing we should have done differently. We probably should have done a northern blot the first uh, <laughs> first couple of weeks we started working on the VHL gene. But no, I think really I look back and the period from 1993 to 2001 was just pretty remarkable. You know, there are a few things I would have done differently in hindsight. 
not so much in terms of how we approach the VHL problem, because again, I'm very happy and proud of the way that work uh, unfolded. But when I speak to young people about things I would do differently today, one thing I tell them is when you're a junior investigator, uh, you probably know uh, where every reagent in the lab came from, and you know its uh, history by memory and by heart, and you probably know how every uh, experimental method that's used in your lab gets done, et cetera, et cetera. But over time, things get more complicated. And you know, one day you, you open your freezer and you realize that uh, you probably don't know what some of the stuff is. And uh, you have people doing procedures and techniques in your lab that you yourself have never done. So I, I wish early on I had created a really uh, robust uh, electronic database of uh, all our reagents, uh, their histories, where they came from, who made them, who we acquired them from, where they were published. I wish I had an electronic searchable protocol book that would outline step-by-step -step every uh, technique we've ever used uh, in the laboratory. That, you know, I think all these things would facilitate how the lab runs. But fortunately, despite all that, the lab runs pretty well. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty common uh wish you would have done kind of thing. I know I wish I would have saved all of my protocols from grad school. So as science has evolved over your career and training with it, both in medicine and in the lab, what positive changes do you see as a PI and mentor taking place? Well, I think certain things that we used to do, let's take an, as, as an example, DNA sequencing. The sequencing used to be very laborious, very time-consuming. You spent hours and hours uh, struggling with these ultra-thin DNA sequencing gels. There was an, an art and sometimes a little bit of magic to even processing the gels in a ways that you could then dry them down, get the autoreticams, and read them. And you know, arguably, that wasn't the best use of anybody's uh, time. So uh, thank goodness uh, now we can sequence so easily so rapidly and we can free up that time and uh, mental bandwidth to focus on other things so uh, you know it's, i certainly look at some uh, some of the technological advances and marvel at them you know another related to that used to be quite an art to making various cdnas that might carry certain mutations or might in some cases encode for chimeric proteins that would contain different subdomains but of course, now, if you if you wanted to, you could just go to your computer and have a company synthesize the relevant uh, cDNA in a form that's ready for uh, subcloning. So, you know, I think that's all really good that we can now focus on other types of questions and not be consumed by what some might refer to as sort of molecular scut work and really you know, get to the experiment uh, that much quicker. You know, I also look at papers today and look at the required technical sophistication of papers and the amount of data that are sometimes required in papers. And you know, slowly the bar has kept moving up and up and up and up. And I think that's one of the things that contributes to the lengthening of, for example, postdoctoral fellowship training periods. And I'm not sure that that's a good thing. So I've, I've written that, you know, maybe we need to go back to having papers that have maybe a fewer claims, but more lines of evidence to support those claims, but every paper doesn't have to be a soup to nuts, tour de force, beginning to end sort of story that, you know, we, in other words, we used to 
we used to publish each paper was you, know, you might think of as sort of a chapter of a story but i think unfortunately now papers sometimes feel like you have to have the whole book you know you have to and i think that's really asking too much i know quite a few postdocs who would be glad to hear your opinion on that so I was looking at your lab's website and looking at the whiteboard in the back that said, most great discoveries start with an unexpected result and a receptive mind. And I just wanted to ask if what that meant to you and whether or not we should try to remain really focused in our targets or try to keep an open mind and move from target to target as we need to. Yeah, and I'm, first of all, I'm a little bit embarrassed because people smarter than me have said variations of that before I said it, but uh, that, that was my wording of it. You know, I think it's it's true that if you if you look at the history of many discoveries, they often did start with a result that was unexpected, perplexing, in some cases, frankly, unwanted, but uh, scientists still pursued uh, that perplexing result, even if, or in some cases, because it, it didn't conform with their initial hypothesis or their initial model. And uh, I, I've heard uh, the laureate, uh, Craig Mello, you know, say that it's likely that many discoveries could have led to major recognition, changing the way we think about things, maybe even prizes, uh, often probably wind up in the waste paper bin because someone just couldn't get their head around what this result was trying to tell them. So I, I think it's really important if you're, you're a scientist that you go where the data uh, take you. And really, I think that's the exciting thing about science. If, if every time you do an experiment, you get the expected result, then it's probably not much of an experiment. It's probably almost, you know, it just means that every question you're asking is almost self-fulfilling or fairly pedestrian. You know, I think a good scientist should hope on occasion they get an unexpected result because that's that's when you really have an opportunity to learn something you didn't know before. And it's one of the reasons why I've always uh, bristled when in grant applications, they ask you for, I think they're called Gantt charts or something like that, where you say what you're going to be doing in years three, four, and five, because if you're really doing in years three, four, and five, what you thought you were going to be doing in years three, four, and five, then it suggests that you know either you just put blinders on and you didn't follow any unexpected results, or what you were doing was really more like engineering rather than science and everything was so predictable that you could predict for years off, you know, years ahead what the, what the results were going to look like. Well, that's also good to hear because I know that we, uh, on more than a few occasions, get some unexpected results. But maybe we should elaborate a little bit in, t- in two different ways. Uh, one is, I remember having a postdoc who came to me really disappointed and he said he had gotten a quote-unquote bad result. And I said, well, you know, let's talk about what you mean by a bad result. So a bad result might mean to some people that you're disappointed by the result, but really on further reflection, it's really a bad experiment, meaning you're missing one or more critical controls, and hence you really can't even uh, interpret the results. So I would call that more of a bad experiment than a bad result. But I said to him, you know, then there's the other class that we were just talking about, which is, you know, the quote-unquote bad result really just means it didn't conform to your prejudice. But if that's what you mean by bad result, then I reassured him that the result is the result. It's neither good nor bad. If the experiment was done properly and it's a well-controlled experiment, you know, that is the result. So the result is the result. So he said that was very helpful for him to be reminded that the result is the result. You know, if you, you can criticize the design of the experiment, 
but the result is the result. So I think that's really important for people to remember. I agree. So one thing that I think physician scientists specifically struggle with is trying to balance the responsibilities of the clinical responsibilities and the research responsibilities, especially early on trying to hit that gauge of what's the right amount of my time yes. as we all strive for the 80-20. Yes. Is there a, a best way to do that? Or is that just something that we all have to kind of feel out as we go? I think it's feel out as we go, but I think there are a couple guiding principles. So for example, when I was first getting started as a young physician scientist, if someone had told me that eventually I would stop seeing patients altogether, I would not have believed them. And I probably would have even violently pushed back against the notion that there would ever come a time when I would not see patients. But I think over the course of time, my calculus in terms of where I could best spend my time changed. And also, as the old saying, common things are common. There were some things that were exciting to me uh, when I first started doing clinical care that became less exciting as I saw some of the same things over and over and over and over again. And especially in oncology, often that involves very disappointing outcomes that were hard to, to watch. And so I thought I would try to do whatever I could do to join the army of people trying to maybe push the field forward a little bit so we would eventually have better therapies for patients. So I, I think it's a very individual decision when you do or don't walk away eventually from seeing patients. But I think the other thing that colored my thinking early on was, you know, I don't think the world needs another scientist who's a, a B or a C. So I, I always tell people, if your choice is between being an A clinician and a B scientist, probably better to be an A clinician. And I knew, at least for myself, but I suspect this is true for most physician scientists, that if you really want to be an A, it really takes uh, tremendous commitment, just as it takes tremendous commitment to be a first-rate clinical doctor. So uh, I just felt that if I was really going to measure myself against some of my scientific heroes, I really needed to devote effectively full-time to doing scientists. And I, I think I, I decided correctly early on that I never wanted anyone to say that you know, Bill Kalin was a good, good scientist for a physician. Uh, I wanted people to say yeah, I was a good physician scientist or maybe even just that I was a good scientist. So maybe there are some remarkable people who can be 50-50s and be A-pluses at both clinical medicine and science, but I certainly wasn't one of those people. Do you mind if I ask you who some of your scientific heroes are? Uh, so some of my scientific heroes uh, uh, have been people like Mike Bishop, and this is going to be a partial list, by the way, but uh, certainly people like Mike Bishop, Bert Bogelstein, Chuck Shear. Bob Weinberg, Bob Eisenman, I mean, there was a host of them. But of course, my biggest hero of all was my mentor, David Livingston. I mean, he was just unbelievable. You know, was arguably the smartest person I, I think I ever met and uh, certainly was the person who taught me how to be a scientist. Excellent. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and wrap up. Dr. Kalin, I can't thank you enough for joining us today on the podcast and helping us to, uh, pick our targets. 
Do you have any uh, parting words for a sign-off for the trainees who have just begun the journey towards becoming a physician scientist? Well, I think, again, when I was young, I couldn't have imagined the career that I would eventually have. And uh, one of my guiding principles was that if I was actually enjoying what I was doing and felt like I was making contributions and people were paying me for it, that was going to be a pretty good gig. And, uh, and it's just a fantastic privilege to come to work every day and do something that you enjoy so much that you do it even if you didn't need the money. And I certainly uh, enjoyed working as a clinical doctor and it's a fantastic, noble career. Uh, but I will say I never felt like I was playing and I never felt guilty that someone was paying me uh, to do it. And when my ship was over, I didn't say, shucks, can I stay another 12 hours and work a little bit longer. So it's a very different type of career to be a clinical doctor, but I've just, again, I feel like I've been very lucky to uh, sort of by accident become a physician scientist and have this career that, as I said, I really feel guilty that people pay me to do it. (laughs) Well, successful by any practical definition. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, great. Thank you. Good luck to you. I appreciate it. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. For more information about hematopoiesis, please visit the hematopoiesis website. 